Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 22 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today, my guest is Robert S. Hopkins III. Robert has a PhD in U.S. and Soviet history from the University of Virginia and is the author of several books about aviation history with a focus on intelligence gathering during the Cold War. But he didn't just study that history, he also lived it. Robert is a retired Air Force pilot who flew strategic reconnaissance missions against the Soviet Union during the Cold War and against Iraq during Operation Desert Storm. Robert piloted the famous RC-135 Cobra Ball, which monitored Soviet ballistic missile tests as part of the National Technical Means of Verification Systems. Today, we're discussing his book, Spy Flights and Overflights, U.S. Strategic Aerial Reconnaissance, Volume 1, 1945 through 1960. And of course, we're also going to talk about his own experiences on the front lines of the Cold War. Robert, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to cover these incredible topics with me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It certainly sounds like to me like you witnessed and you took part in some amazing events during the Cold War. Did your own experiences lead you to write books or was that like always a goal of yours from the beginning? In part, it was always a goal of mine. I've been fascinated with recording history, and it just seemed natural after having participated in so many of these events to be able to write about them both from a personal insider perspective, as well as having the formal academic training to look it up, to read the sources, go to the original documents, conduct the interviews, and put together the other side of the story. So it's just a natural evolution. Well, it's a great one, I have to say, because your book, I've been reading it these past couple of weeks, and it's fantastic to me. You know, it's kind of what I would consider a coffee table book because of the size and the number of like high quality photographs and everything. But it's also very, very readable. All the anecdotes and everything really keep you interested. And it's extremely well sourced as well. So it's just kind of got that trifecta that is exactly what I look for when I'm learning about this kind of history. And I really appreciate that. Well, then you'll be very pleased to know that Volume 2 from 1960 to 1992 is in production right now. Oh, fantastic. So when is that going to be available, by the way? Oh, it'll probably be uh, the next calendar year. What's that? 2020, late 2022 or early 2023, mm. largely due to publishing delays associated with the COVID situation. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, that'll be worth the wait, I'm sure. So let's, let's just go ahead and dive right in. Obviously, this book covers 1945 through 1960, and I was kind of shocked as just over the past couple of years, I've started learning more about the aviation history from that period. I'm not really an aviation buff going way back. I didn't know much of this. I was totally shocked to learn many of the facts that you cover really extensively in the book. So can we start off just by talking about like what kind of reconnaissance flights were going on during these early stages of the Cold War, you know, U.S. versus Soviet Union trying to figure out what they were up to. 
Absolutely. And although I'll focus on the United States, I want to stress that these missions were also undertaken by the British, the Swedes, France, and other nations. So it was not just the United States, but most Western countries were deeply concerned about the potential threat of the Soviet Union, as well as by 1949, the Communist People's Republic of China. So it was a, a global effort and should not be viewed exclusively through a U.S.-Soviet lens. But for simply ease of discussion, that's what I'll tend to refer to. There were really two types of missions. One were the peripheral missions flown off the coast or along the border of hostile territory. And then there were occasional overflights of denied territory. Most of the overflights are what we would associate with the very notorious U-2 incident of 1960. But in fact, by 1956, there were nearly 156 RB-47 overflights at the Soviet Union. And of course, the Republic of China Air Force on Taiwan flew a number of penetration overflights of the People's Republic of China. And Surprisingly, even Sweden conducted overflights of both East Germany and the Baltic Soviet Socialist Republics. So they were quite extensive. And as you alluded to with your surprise, what we may read in the newspaper today about these missions, uh, they've been going on for 70 years. I grew up during the Cold War, but, you know, satellites were already in orbit and I never really considered the amount of, of danger that would be required for these pilots to fly over and find out the different kinds of intelligence that could be collected, you know, from an overflight like that. And of course, they're putting their lives on the line every day. And I was just totally shocked at like the number of casualties and all that, which is something that I, I want to get into a little bit later. Precisely. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Sweden as well, because I was very surprised to see how much Sweden popped up in the book. I never really thought of them as kind of going toe to toe with the Soviets, but I guess I learned something new every day. Absolutely. And in fact, for Sweden in particular, uh, their concerns were whether or not the Soviets would honor their obligation in the Finno-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Amity to avoid passing through Finland, through Sweden to get to Norway. And even during the latter stations, excuse me, portions of the Cold War, there were concerns that the Soviets would have to put picket fighters over Sweden to intercept U.S. bombers inbound from the United States or Great Britain. So a country like Sweden that we viewed as powerfully neutral, very strongly anti-nuclear, and for many people it was seen as the haven of the anti-war crowd during the Vietnam years, Sweden had its own extensive support of Western overflights as well as participating in its own overflights because its national security clearly hinged upon what happened in the Baltic states as well as the Soviet Union. So it was a real surprise. Right, absolutely. So was there... For any of these countries involved, was there anything like a, a typical mission profile that developed for these kind of flights? Like how were they run exactly, flying over enemy territory in an unarmed aircraft? 
Well, I want to stress that the overflights were really the minority. In fact, I could say there were 26 U-2 overflights of the Soviet Union, and compared to the number of peripheral sorties flown by the United States, those numbered in the thousands. So we're comparing really apples and oranges here, but the peripheral missions were all very comparable. They might depart from a base in the United Kingdom, fly up over the North Sea and fly around the tip of Norway and southeast along the Soviet coast, orbit off of the Barents Sea to try and pick up electronic intelligence, associated with Soviet submarines or naval vessels and radio transmissions, and then return back to a base in the United Kingdom and eventually return to their home base, either in, say, Kansas or Nebraska. So that would be a typical profile for a peripheral mission. The overflight missions were entirely different. They were well-planned in advance, very meticulous, all required presidential authority since they were overflights of the Soviet Union. And as we know from the U-2 incident, President Eisenhower authorized them himself explicitly. So despite a lot of conspiracy theorists, there were no rogue generals like Curtis LeMay or Tommy Power saying, I'm going to start World War III today by sending a reconnaissance flight over the Soviet Union. That makes for good TV and good Hollywood, but there's absolutely no evidence to support that. And in fact, all the evidence opposes that kind of conspiracy theory. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. You know, a lot of what I've kind of been learning the past few years about all of this is that in some ways, a lot of our intelligence gathering, ours against the Soviet Union and theirs against ourselves it kind of tended, some people say it kind of tended to calm things down a little bit because you learned about readiness, which told you that the other side was not necessarily preparing for an imminent attack. So in that way, it was actually good. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Did these flights, did they tend to um, calm things down or did they tend to heat things up typically? Publicly, like with the U-2 incident, they certainly uh, created a lot of noise. In fact, I look at the 1960 U-2 incident as international theater. There were, of course, the losses of Western aircraft shot down by the Soviet Union, but those were often buried in like page 12 of the New York Times simply because the United States did not want to admit to them and the Soviets didn't want to have to deal with the guilt and the complexities of admitting that they shot down an airplane in international airspace in violation of of international accords that they themselves signed. So in public, there there seems to be this tension, this anxiety, this sense that these flights are bad and that they're provocative. And in fact, ultimately, one of the great American diplomats, George F. Kennan, who was ambassador to the Soviet Union, argued that they were, can amount to war. And, and that's just hyperbole. That's just noise. Because ultimately, these missions reassured both sides that there was not an imminent attack and that the United States could not necessarily have to 
overreact to claims. I think the missile gap and the bomber gap are both ideal examples. Uh, you know, we were afraid that the Soviets were ahead in missile development, ICBM development, but U-2 photographs, EB-47E TEL-2 missions, ground-based radar, a variety of, of peripheral sorties, as well as the deep overflights, reassured President Eisenhower that the Soviets were not, in fact, ahead in missile development, and therefore he, he didn't have to spend extra defense dollars trying to overcome this deficiency. And in fact, the irony of this is John Kennedy, when he ran for president, ran on the argument that there was a missile cap and that Nixon, the vice president, was soft on defense and Ike was soft on defense. And after Kennedy was elected and decided to announce that he would have this very strong missile buildup to overcome this gap, his Secretary of Defense, Bob McNamara, publicly announced, well, we're really sorry there's never been a missile gap, but we're going to build these missiles anyway. So the intelligence has been there. It's been unequivocal, and I think it's contributed to the stability on both sides, because the United States did not have to overreact to the Soviets. And in many cases, the Soviets were deeply concerned that they couldn't intercept or shoot down the U-2s. But admitting that they couldn't do it revealed a public weakness, that their defense was, was too weak. And in doing so, that did not provoke further U.S. escalation. And it really turned out to be a case of it's easier just to play the game and leave it at that. So I think these flights contributed substantially to international stability during the height of the Cold War, just as they do today. Hmm. That's fantastic. You know, it's kind of funny that the power play between these two countries, these two great powers, in so many ways, it was hinging on, you know, one pilot in one airplane, 50,000, 60,000 feet above the Soviet Union all on his lonesome there and everybody's aware of what's going on and what he's photographing and what he brings back and what he sees and doesn't see all of that really can change the world in a sense once he gets back, I guess. Absolutely. And both sides knew the other was doing it. Um, in the book, there's a beautiful picture of Eisenhower standing next to Khrushchev at Camp David. And Nikita knew full well that Ike knew full well that the U-2s were overflying. And neither one of them said anything about it. And I, I would really like to stress that airplanes conducting aerial intelligence are no different than cloak and dagger spies conducting intelligence gathering missions or efforts. So the only difference is this perception that obviously it was attempted to be undermined with the civilian U-2 program was that this traditional notion of military overflights of a foreign country are tantamount to a declaration of war. And so Ike in particular said, if I send civilian pilots, it's not going to be a, a conflict. But we don't have any hesitation about sending spies into foreign countries or recruiting counter agents. So I think there's a hysteria associated with aircraft 
especially overflights, that really is no different than sending James Bond behind the enemy lines with a bunch of cameras and tape recorders. So it's just a question of the mechanism rather than the purpose. Right. That's a very odd logic to bring to the to the argument, I have to admit, but it does make sense. Like you're sending people in on a high risk mission one way or the other. And, you know, whether they're military background or civilian background, how much of a difference does it really make in the end if they're caught or if they crash or, or what have you? Exactly. Uh, so I have to ask, we've obviously been talking about these these U.S. overflights of Soviet territory and uh, Eastern European territory. Were there any Soviet reconnaissance overflights of U.S. territory at any point? Yes, and that's that's a surprise for a lot of people, and it was almost exclusively of Alaska. As early as the 1950s, Soviet aircraft overflew Alaska. I'm not sure exactly what they were looking for, because at that time there really wasn't much of a U.S. military presence there. There had been, of course, through Lend-Lease, Alaska was the primary means by which American-built aircraft reached the Soviet Union. But it just was, I guess, an effort to determine if there were any American bases, and if so, what, what equipment might have been there. There were occasional overflights, not necessarily of American physical territory, but violation of the uh, 12 nautical mile limit of American waters off the East Coast as Soviet aircraft would fly around from the Soviet Union down the East Coast to Cuba. And the other consideration is that when Soviet airliners like Aeroflot would fly into New York, for example, they would be configured with cameras or electronic gear to monitor these sorts of uh, radio transmissions or take pictures. And in fact, Strategic Air Command actually dedicated a couple of RB-47 flights to follow these airliners and try and detect what they were listening to or what they might be picking up. So it was it was real cloak and dagger stuff for the Soviets. Hmm. The difference is that the United States could not identify what was deep within the USSR, whereas a Soviet agent could go to a gas station in Fort Worth, Texas, get a map of the state and be able to plot where Carswell Air Force Base and how many B-36s are there without any trouble whatsoever. So there really wasn't a need for a Soviet overflight capability because as with any open society, it, it was vulnerable to traditional cloak and dagger spy stuff. Okay, that yeah, that makes perfect sense because I guess you know, from my, my layman perspective, it's harder to get an overflight here because, of course, we have the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans on both sides. And, you know, the Russia has a lot more points of entry from land-based bordering countries. But we also, you know, right. let thousands and tens of thousands of foreigners in every day. And some of them are going to be co-opted working for the Soviets. And, you know, we allow free travel and that kind of thing and had didn't keep close tabs on foreigners like the Soviets did. So I guess they still were able to gather a lot of valuable information even without the overflights. Right. And today we're seeing the end of a program known as Open Skies, where 34 nations signed an agreement to overfly one another. 
as a confidence-building measure. And the critics of Open Sky say, my gosh, the Russians could learn about our infrastructure and our crumbling bridges. And, and you know, kind of like George C. Scott in Dr. Strangelove, Mr. President, they'll see the big board. My gosh, you don't want to... Good grief. These mm-hmm. these Russian agents today could rent a car from Hertz and drive from New York to Los Angeles and get exactly the same intelligence that during the Cold War required either overflights or peripheral missions or ultimately satellite reconnaissance to determine what was going on inside these closed countries. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, the U.S. is an absolute open book compared to most of our major adversaries. And, you know, that's good in every way for life and culture and freedom, but it's really bad for our counterintelligence stance. That's for sure. Absolutely. So you did mention a few flights over Alaska. What was the U.S. response to these flights? Did we try to intercept and shoot down the way that they would occasionally try to shoot down our own overflights of the Soviet Union? No. In fact, most of the overflights were simply detected by radar. Soviet border violations, particularly those along the East Coast, usually resulted in the launch of uh, F-106s or maybe F-4s or F-15s, where they would simply kind of scoot their interloper out of the airspace and say, aha, gotcha. We know you do it. You know we do it. But you know what? The United States doesn't shoot down airplanes. The only country that ever shot down a Soviet reconnaissance flight was Pakistan because it w- they would occasionally overfly Pakistan and Iran. And Pakistan, as I said, was the only one that ever fired back. So it was a real lopsided situation and the Soviets, the People's Republic of China and North Korea were all very hostile and their policy was shoot first, ask questions later. And that was a complete reverse of both the United Kingdom, Sweden, there were multiple Soviet overflights of Sweden, even American overflights of Sweden. And you just don't shoot them down because you just don't do that. And if you do, you have to accept the consequences. And of course, the Soviets and Chinese did not care about the consequences, but the United States did because in the world court judgment, if the Americans shot down a Soviet spy plane, uh, that would be seen as proof of America's duplicity, whereas the Soviets could shoot down American spy planes out of self-defense. And reflect the paranoia that they used to justify their their lifestyle and their restricted country. Right, right. It's funny the way that there's very different perspectives on the same actions by different countries. Exactly. For sure. And I think you're absolutely right. That would be the perspective of an armed U.S. aircraft shooting down a bunch of innocent guys in an unarmed aircraft just doing their jobs. So absolutely. Just following orders. Yeah, I can you see bet. that for sure. So, 
when these overflights are occurring, obviously they're taking a lot of photos, but there's a lot more to it than that. So what kinds of intelligence were we trying to gather and did we gather on these overflights? Well, first of all, you're exactly right about the photographs. You want to be able to see what your adversary is doing. Over time, however, additional forms of intelligence, particularly new to the Cold War, became very prominent, and they included the broad topic of what's called signals intelligence. And that's two different categories, electronic intelligence, which is how a radar looks, what kind of signals it makes, the wavelength it operates on, how it's linked to anti-aircraft defenses, how far out it can see. And the other type is communications intelligence, what people are saying on the radio, what command and control centers are talking to what fighter bases or what missile defense sites. So whether it was a peripheral mission or one of these very few, and again, I want to reiterate the overflights were so few compared to the peripheral missions that photent or photography eventually pass into a lesser importance among the aerial reconnaissance because of the advent of satellites. And these overhead satellites could collect the same or better quality imagery at altitudes which clearly made them non-threatening. And as Khrushchev said in 1960, my goodness, Sputnik would never overfly your country with a camera. Cough, cough. Of course they did. And the United States found it was easier and less <laughs> threatening to have that right. argument just by using satellites. So the peripheral missions, with the exception of by the latter half of the Cold War with the rise of both the peripheral use of the U-2 and the very famous SR-71 Blackbird, they would collect photographs, both overflights of Vietnam, North Korea, but peripheral missions along the Baltic, the Barents, and along the Chinese coast and the Soviet coast near Vladivostok. So the real collection, the real benefit of all this intelligence primarily was designed to provide the United States with an understanding of A, whether or not a hostile nation was ready to attack the United States or its allies, and B, if the United States or its allies had to go to war, what would be the electronic threats that would limit or inhibit the ability of the United States to carry out the strategic war plan known as the PSYOP, the Single Integrated Operations Plan, previously known as the EWP, the Emergency War Plan. In either case, knowing what the enemy had for its defenses allowed U.S. planners to say, we can now defeat those defenses and complete our, our nuclear strikes, our objectives. And so targeting and the PSYOP really became far more important than simply locating a dam or where a bridge was, uh, sort of that traditional World War II or World War I era intelligence. Pho photography, photent, really declined in importance from aircraft and increased with satellites. I see. I see. That makes sense. So with all of this technical 
collection capability that came online and just continued to you know ramp up and ramp up and get better and more sophisticated. Were there also these inherent limitations in this type of collection? You know, was there like a what, did it provide like a myopic view of what was going on, so to speak? Yes, and that was a real problem. A number of officials in the U.S. government and the intelligence community said, you know, having this picture tells us one thing, but we it's not a movie. So we don't know what's going on there. And listening to somebody on a radio or whatever, all these are technical snapshots, but we cannot over rely upon them at the expense of excluding the traditional forms of what's called human, human intelligence. We still need somebody in the inside to tell us, you know, yeah, I see an airbase here. It's got five airplanes on it. But you know what? We don't have any way to get fuel to these airplanes because 50 miles down the road, the pipeline broke and the bridge getting it again. We just can't get fuel to them. So the picture shows five bombers on that airbase and they might be a threat. But we still need the human intelligence, that other component to tell us they don't have any gas to get airborne. So they're no threat at all. They're just things sitting on a ramp. And that was the challenge that they faced as we get into more and more technology. We need still to understand what's going on in the minds of the operators and in the minds of the Soviet or now Russian or Chinese leaders, what are they thinking? We know a capability, but we still don't know their intention. And these new forms of intelligence told us about capabilities, not necessarily intentions. Sure. Sure. That makes perfect sense. And just like we alluded to earlier, you know, both of these places, all of our adversaries really are very, very difficult to penetrate with human assets much more so than the, the technical assets that we had online. Because, I mean, uh, I've had other guests on the podcast talk about human intelligence in these denied areas and the incredible difficulties that were faced, far more so even than some of the overflights, I would say, because most of the overflights were successful and most of our human intelligence operations, I do not think were successful uh, over the Cold War. So I guess we always had a bit of a skewered perspective on our adversaries during that time period. Right. And that led to a wide variety of misunderstandings. Oh, my gosh, they have 15 of these airplanes. Well, they don't do anything. They're not very efficient. They they can't carry on as Americans would imagine that our version of that airplane would function. So, again, we had an understanding that was slightly skewed about foreign capabilities, but we really didn't know what the intentions were, what the Soviets, for example, wanted to do, whether they were going to use them, what kind of weapons they could carry, what kind of range they might have. So capabilities and intentions are two different things, and strategic aerial reconnaissance was really good at capabilities and fair at best at intentions. Sure, sure. Makes perfect sense. So even having discussed these limitations, there were still some times, I mean, we gathered a lot of good intelligence nevertheless, and there were also some times in your book, as you mentioned, where these capabilities played like a real pivotal role in a moment in history. So can you give a couple of like examples of times that these were used to great effect to turn things to our advantage or to gain clarity on a developing situation? Right. As I alluded to earlier, the missile gap and the bomber gap were both the 
really good examples of understanding that what we thought was simply not true. Looking at photographs from the U-2, we could see that there was one, two, three, maybe six Soviet ballistic missiles, not hundreds or thousands. And the bomber gap, we could again see that there were, yeah, we saw five or six fly over, and then 10 minutes later, another five or six flew over Moscow during the big air show there. But they were the same airplanes just flying in circles. So uh, oh, wow. aerial reconnaissance clearly debunked both the bomber gap and the missile gap. The challenge to understanding the successes of a lot of intelligence flights is to recognize that they also have limits. Um, probably one of the biggest examples is the 1956 Suez crisis with President Eisenhower looking at photographs saying, hey, this is U-2 imagery that shows that the Soviets are not getting ready to move forces into Syria to attack either the Israelis or the French and British and their operations in Suez. Therefore, I here in the United States will not have to respond to a potential Soviet move and we can minimize or de-emphasize a potential conflict with the Soviet Union. That's always touted as a really great example of how these flights are pivotal in deciding how not to go to war or to prevent war. What's missing from that equation is that those very same U-2 flights were able to identify, and Eisenhower knew, and Alan Dulles at CIA knew, and John Foster Dulles at Department of State knew, knew months in advance that the Israelis, the French, and the British were going to attack in Suez. And Ike was unable to use these even when he showed them to the British, for example, and says, we know what you're doing, or to the French and saying, we see you moving all these forces to Marseille, he was unable to convince them not to attack. So there really was sort of a double-edged sword to the effectiveness and importance of these aerial reconnaissance flights during international crises. They did a lot to prevent them from getting out of hand from over-escalating, but the Suez crisis in particular demonstrated that they were not always effective in preventing it from happening to begin with. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've already kind of alluded several times to the, the May Day shootdown in 1960, and I'm sure that almost everybody listening right now, if they think of anything regarding Cold War high-flying reconnaissance missions, that's probably the first one they think about. So I'd like to kind of dive into that one and go over what exactly it was that happened and separate the fact from the fiction. So can you just tell us what exactly happened on May 1st, 1960, with that shootdown of the U-2 over the Soviet Union? Absolutely. It's a very simple solution. The luck ran out. <laughs> there would eventually be a time when one of these airplanes is going to get shot down. And Frank Powers was the lucky winner. That's it. 
There was no conspiracy. There was no effort for him to descend. He was not complicit. I've worked with his son, Gary Powers Jr. I've worked with Chris Pocock, probably the world's foremost authority on the U2. And we have simply never seen any evidence that goes beyond histrionic conspiracy theory, sort of ancient aliens level mentality that would justify anything other than to say that Frank Powers ran out of luck on the 1st of May, 1960, and that there were enough SA-2 missiles that were launched that one of them got close enough to hit him. It was going to happen. It just happened to him. That's all there is to it. And that may be very disappointing. There's no real, you know, excitement here. Oh, he took off from Peshawar and then he made this turn here and he got up to Sverdlovsk and as he passed over to Katrinburg where they shot the Tsar's family in 1918. None of that is anything other than the details. Frank's luck ran out and so did the CIA's and the U-2 mission. And that's sort of the end of the story. It's not very dramatic at all, but that's what happened. Hmm. So with this SA-2, I know that, for example, you know, the Soviet fighters had tried to uh, climb to a level where they could shoot down U-2s previously, and they were not able to do so. And I would assume that with the the level of planning that goes into these missions, that they would typically, you know, account for air defenses. So was there any, was there anything that happened such as, you know, an SA-2 battery was moved into the flight path without us realizing or, or anything like that to your knowledge? Not really. Uh, there were efforts made by Soviet fighters to intercept uh, Frank. And in fact, one Soviet fighter was lost trying to do this. I think a good example or a good way to reflect on this was the loss of an F-117 during the Bosnian-Serbian imbroglio, simply because the airplanes were flying the same route every day at the same time. And the predictability of the U-2 overflights were such that as soon as they were airborne out of Pakistan, the Soviets were sending messages to everybody in the potential route, hey, be prepared. We might get him over our area. And in this case, as he approached Sverdlovsk, the SA-2 batteries were already in, in preparations. They were looking forward to it. The fighters had already become airborne. They couldn't reach it, obviously, because A, they they really lacked any efficient air-to-air missiles at that altitude. And climbing to 70-some thousand feet, the air just wasn't there for the maneuverability. And, you know, if you shoot off 35 SAMs, eventually one of them's going to hit. And so I think in part, it was the predictability of the route. We, without hearkening back to a very famous book by Cornelius Ryan and the Arnhem affair with Operation Market Garden, we went a bridge too far with Grand Slam, with the Frank Powers flight, because I think it it would have been a success, but it also would have been the last mission that Eisenhower would have authorized. And I think he authorized one too many. And that's it. It ran out of luck. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And then it uh, just authorizing one too many and a bridge too far, like you mentioned, turned into one of the absolute pivotal moments of that entire era, I think. If I recall from your book, you said that they were not the U.S. government, U.S. chain of command, they did not anticipate that 
a crash of a U-2 would be survivable for the pilot. Is that right? So everybody was kind of shocked. That's correct. When, when Powers emerged, you know, from the wreckage with his parachute and his and his life, I guess. You bet. You bet. In fact, Alan Dulles and Richard Bissell made clear to President Eisenhower, we expect that if we lose the U-2, it will be with the loss of a pilot. It's just not practical because the U-2 losses in training, for example, made it very clear that the survivability of a U-2 crash was very low. So there was this false expectation and I think a misrepresentation on behalf of Dulles and Bissell and others that if a U-2 goes down over the Soviet Union, there would be no pilot to corroborate, to go on trial. And Khrushchev very shrewdly did not announce that he had power alive until several days into this. And Eisenhower was caught truly with his trousers down because he was saying, oh, it was a weather flight that got off track and the pilot's oxygen failed and he, he lost consciousness and he died in the cockpit. Absolutely hmm. not. We caught you red-handed. And it was at that point that I think Ike made very clear, we're not doing this because we're jerks. We're not doing this because we're trying to provoke World War III. We're doing this because the United States fears the Soviet Union, and we're trying to reassure ourselves and our allies that we should not be afraid of the Soviet Union. So at that point, with the presence of a, a live pilot, the United States was confronted with a fait accompli and could no longer deny the importance of having these missions. Hmm. Yeah, that's such a tough position for powers to be in because it's either complete success or his death. It was expected. I know that, you know, they very famously issued him that suicide pin hidden in the silver dollar. Do you think that or do you happen to know, was he briefed on that? I mean, was he fully expected to kill himself or was that just something like a like a psychological tool that they used? Because he obviously did not use it. There is no question. He he was told about it. He knew it was there. But he was never instructed. None of the U-2 pilots were ever instructed to use this. They said, if you feel like it's appropriate, it's there. But again, I think sort of this mythology that's built up around the U-2 incident says, oh, well, even at the time in 1960, American leaders believe very strong. In fact, after Alan Dulles got fired, his successor never gave up in blaming Powers. In fact, said he should have committed suicide. He should have done this. There were no instructions to do that. In fact, they were never really expected to be taken prisoner or to survive a crash. So how in the world can anyone imagine that they were instructed what to do if they did? So um, I, I think there's a lot of mythology there. And again, I defer to Gary Powers Jr. and Chris Pocock and their expertise. I think the U-2 incident was a significant event of the Cold War. I think it allowed Khrushchev to torpedo the Paris conference. 
But I think he was going to torpedo that anyway. He just used the U-2 incident as an example. And if you really put my feet to the fire, I would say that compared to the 1983 shootdown of the Korean airliner, there was a greater likelihood of conflict not necessarily resulting from the actual aircraft incident, but the tension between the United States and the Soviet Union in 1983 between Reagan and Andropov and the predecessors uh, to Gorbachev, that was a far more delicate and tense international aerial incident compared to the U-2 incident. But one got a lot more theater than the other. And so I I don't want to really discount Frank Power's great heroism and personal contribution to the program here, but I think the show trial and the newspaper and the sudden shock that the United States is conducting these overflights and that Ike had lied to protect this really gave it an air of importance that is exaggerated. Hmm. That makes perfect sense, honestly. And I have to say, I'm not really a fan of people criticizing a guy for not killing himself for the mission. Honestly, that's that's a heck of a position to put someone in when you haven't been in it yourself. So I kind of hate to hear that he was criticized for so many years afterwards. For, exactly. You know, not spending that dollar, as they said in the film. So his story is, you know, a, a major portion, of course, of the the recent Spielberg movie Bridge of Spies. So I, I don't want to go into the whole prisoner exchange right. and everything. That's that's an incredible story, but I really want to focus on the flights here as well. So besides this flight, which most people probably know about if they're tuned into this podcast to begin with, there were some other shoot downs and there was quite a bit of loss of life as well throughout the whole Cold War period. Is that right? Absolutely. Looking at just United States aircraft and excluding those from other countries, particularly the Republic of China, there were 30 U.S. aircraft that were shot down during the Cold War or lost during the Cold War due to hostile action. And the total number of people, crew members on board that were lost is approximately, and I'll tell you why I use that, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 180 to 200. And the reason I can't give you an exact number is that some of the missions, like the RB-50s and the RB-29s, we could count the standard crews of pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer, radio operator, navigator, four electronic intelligence operators. Many of these that were lost in that era had an unknown number of other people who got on board and they were not really listed as crew members. And in fact, a lot of the people who saw this or who flew with them never really knew what they did. But in fact, they were linguists who would use the radios to listen in. And it was early comment communications intelligence. And at the time, in the very early 1950s and mid-1950s, many discussions of comment capability were, were the deepest, darkest secrets, even among the reconnaissance flyers themselves. They would, they would say, hey, some guy got on the airplane. Who is he? I don't know. He'd never seen him before, but he's got a headset on and he's just writing stuff down. What's he doing? I don't know. Never seen him before, but he, you know, and 
we really didn't know exactly how many people were there. But adding up the numbers, I'd say between 180 and 200 American citizens, whether they were civilian or military, have been lost to hostile action during these Cold War reconnaissance flights. That's really incredible. I, I tell you, I was blown away when I first saw those figures. I think it was actually last year. There's a little display at the Cold War Museum in Vent Hill, Virginia. And yes. that was my first exposure to these numbers. And my, my very first reaction, honestly, was that's not a Cold War. That's an air war. You know, but yes. to see hundreds of Americans died and I couldn't name a single one of them. You know, Gary Powers was the only or Frank Powers was the only one that came to mind. And he, of course, he came back alive. So, so many people died. And just like you said, they're not listed on any manifest or anything. They're not listed on a memorial wall anywhere. You know, some, some linguist just out there doing his job to the best of his ability and, you know, never recovered. Family never learned what happened to him. It's, it's really incredible. Exactly. The late Dino Bruccioni, who's one of the uh, former NPIC intelligence analysts who looked at the Cuban Missile Crisis images, has written a number of books on the... Uh, aerial reconnaissance, notably Eyeball to Eyeball, and his last book just before he died, uh, when we were discussing some of these issues, he told me flat out that the greatest failure of the Eisenhower administration was never to really acknowledge to the families that their husbands, their sons, their brothers, their fathers died doing these missions, which were of considerable value to the United States and the free world. And they were often told oh, they were lost on a training mission or it was pilot error and they flew into a typhoon. That's, that's a misnomer that was just perpetuated to try and obscure this. Dino was right. I think Eisenhower did a disservice I tried very hard in my book to recognize the the men who did not, and they were all men, there were no women at the time, um, the men who did not come back from these flights and the sacrifice they were willing to make because of what they believed in. So the RB-47 that was shot down in July 1st, 1962, months after Frank Powers was shot down, you know, John McCone and Bruce Olmsted survived, but the three Ravens and Willard Palm, Bill Palm, the aircraft commander, he died. And, you know, we just are unaware of the mm -hmm. number of people who made that sacrifice because they believed it was the right thing to do and they were willing to take that risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of unsung sacrifice out there. I mean, throughout the scope of human history, but especially in these, you know, classified missions and even though I completely understand the need for the operational security and telling the families what happened, it's really sad that they can concoct a, a cover story that kind of puts the blame on the individual themselves for, like you said, flying into a typhoon or a training accident or something like that, rather than, you know, going toe to toe with our biggest adversary when you're unarmed. Exactly. Um, it's, it's really sad that the families didn't get closure and that their sacrifices weren't kind of properly honored in that way eventually.
Precisely, and I've been in touch with many of the family members to discuss this and the issue about that typhoon, the son of one of the crew members on board the airplane, and I have corresponded about this, and I explained that despite the claims, the allegations that it was, you know, just stupidly flown into a typhoon, um, where they were located was 500 kilometers away from the periphery of a very spent typhoon. It was no longer a typhoon. It wasn't even a tropical storm. It was so far away. And I I have sufficient evidence to show that the airplane was actually shot down by Soviet MiGs. And talking with Mm. this, the son, he said, you know, I knew my dad was involved in something important. And to be told he died stupidly by flying into a typhoon dishonors his memory. And even if he was shot down by the enemy, nothing will change his loss. But now I can appreciate and and honor and respect what he was doing on behalf of the United States and what he believed in. And that gave that son comfort and his wife and grandkids everybody now can appreciate that this is a risky business every mission that i flew there was zero percent chance of ever surviving if something went wrong in fact we would often joke what would you do you know if you ditch in the arctic ocean your survivability is three minutes four minutes in in that water nobody's going to come and get you you're out there all by yourself well let's do the valhalla thing you know and and that's kind of a morbid mentality but it's a recognition that those crew members were committed to risking everything to achieve the intelligence goals of the United States with the intent of preserving the American way of life. And that may sound corny and cliche, but that's about as true as it gets. Yeah, absolutely. That's not in the least bit corny to me, believe me, Robert. That's perfectly said. So obviously hundreds were lost, 30 aircraft were lost, hundreds of casualties. These were all... I guess all of them were were unarmed missions, right? So how did these guys enhance their own survivability? I mean, how how did you protect yourself against enemy air defenses when you're unarmed and on a secret mission? Was there anything that they could do or did they just have to try to get lucky every single time? Well, let me be clear. These, with the exception of one of these airplanes, let me correct that, two of these airplanes, with the exception of Frank Powers U-2 and the exception of the U.S. Navy EC-121 that the North Koreans shot down in 1968, all of these were armed. Oh, okay. Okay. I see. They They were converted bombers. They had tail guns. They had turrets. But they were not always necessarily equipped to shoot back. For example, in April of 1950, the very first U.S. aircraft shot down over the Baltic, a Navy privateer, it had all the turrets and it had all the guns, but the chambers were removed because the Navy was told that having these violated Swedish sensibilities, and since the airplanes operated on a routine daily basis, flying into Stockholm, for example, or Copenhagen, or Broma, or some of these other locations in the Baltic, 
that was one of the arguments that the Soviets made that justified shooting down these aircraft. For example, the RB-50s or the RB-29s saying, oh, we went up to intercept them being peace-loving people and tried to escort them away, but they shot at us. They fired their guns at us, and so we shot them down in self-defense. So the RB-29s, the RB-50s, the RB-45s, the privateers, the mercators, the mariners uh, from the Navy, they were all configured for self-defense. And that ultimately led in after the loss of the RB-47 in 1960 to the decision to use a converted transport, or in this case, it was a jet tanker, to go from RB-47 or RB-50 to RC-135. So you had a bigger airplane that looked just like an airliner. And you could honestly say... This didn't have any guns, so it couldn't shoot it okay. down. In any case, along the periphery, and if there were overflights, primarily the biggest success to evading being shot down was very quickly to get as slow and low and run away. So an aircraft might pull the power to zero, push the nose over, hmm dump the speed brakes and try and descend as rapidly as possible and then at low altitude egress the area. So there really weren't too many ways. There were no chaff and flares and things that we would think of today. Um, the old joke, alone, unarmed, and unafraid applied to these early era reconnaissance hmm. crew members. Hmm. Okay, I see. I see. Yeah, low and slow and fly away. That makes that makes perfect sense from a survivability perspective, I suppose. Right. One other thing I'd love to address with you is the uh, there's been many rumors over the years. Uh, some people very firmly believe that some of these crew members that were shot down and went missing may have been held in captivity by the Soviet Union, maybe even later on by by the Russian government afterwards. So what what are your thoughts on this? Were there or are there any long term POWs from a shot down aircraft? I have never seen any evidence that is sufficiently compelling to make that the case. Uh, when I was doing research for my newest book, Crowded Skies, Cold War Reconnaissance Over the Baltic, I interviewed people associated with uh, the former Soviet Union who said they were in a gulag prison camp somewhere and there was a blonde-haired blue-eyed guy who was uh, spoke English and we think he was an American from the privateer shot down in April of 1950. These are I think very disingenuous claims. There's no proof. Um, I know the hmm. U.S. POW MIA program has investigated these very thoroughly. We know that when Boris Yeltsin was president, he informed us that the 18 May 1955 loss of an RB-47 off Kamchatka was in fact one that they shot down. We did not even know that it was shot down. We simply thought it had disappeared. Yeltsin made very clear what hmm. had become of the crews. And after the exchange, for example, of the Soviet sailors from that had been raised from the deep at, by the Glomar Explorer and th those sorts of exchanges, 
I think there was a time when the United States and the former Soviet Union could speak honestly about this. And I don't think there's any evidence, any evidence that would stand up that I could look a family in the eye and say, there's hope that your father survived and was put in a camp somewhere. I, I just think it's it's dishonest and it gives a false sense of hope. We would all love it to be true, perhaps, that they somehow survived and could be repatriated. But the only ones we know who were captured and repatriated were John McCone and Bruce Olmsted, the two from the B-47, and the Soviets returned the body of Bill Palm, the aircraft commander, and they made clear that they were aware of the name of one of the other Ravens on board that RB-47. But um, no, I, there's just nothing there. Okay, okay. that's It's good to really put that to rest because that kind of, of hope can just kind of burrow in, I would imagine. Uh, I've never been in any situation close to that, but it can it can really be such a burden, I would imagine, over the course of your whole life, that not knowing. So hopefully it gives a measure people a measure of peace to know that it's been looked into thoroughly and does not appear to be true. Agreed. So your, your book is, of course, covering the period 1945 through 1960, just like it says in the topic. But you flew later on, much later on during the Cold War. But of course, you know, I, I can't get you off the line without talking to you about your own experiences with the Cobra Ball. So can you just kind of give me any, a, a little overview of your own experience flying and going up against Soviet nuclear tests and some of the other projects that you worked on? Well, sure. Let me clarify that the Cobra Ball did not associate with Soviet nuclear tests. That's a different mission, the Constant Phoenix collection. The Cobra Ball was designed to monitor as a component of America's national technical means of verification. Soviet and other countries, I'll leave it at that, uh, ballistic missile tests. During the 19, late 1950s, we didn't have a way to assess the technical capabilities of the Soviet ballistic missiles. We could get some telemetry from ground radar. We could sort of track the arc. But what we really needed was a visual representation, and we definitely needed something to track warhead development, a point of impact and reentry. And that's really the gestation of Cobra Ball, which began in the 1960s. And it was, for me, the greatest highlight of my career. I flew airborne command posts and KC-135 jet tankers, and I volunteered to go to the RC program to fly up in Alaska. And for three years, it was the best mission on the planet. We participated in the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty Shoot to Destruction, where the Soviets would shoot SS-20 intermediate range ballistic missiles out to the Kluchy range there on Kamchatka. We would monitor watching the warheads re-enter the atmosphere and the sensors on board would track them both optically and in terms of telemetry. And then that data would go to Wright-Patterson 
Air Force Base in Ohio where the technical people would use spectroscopy, for example, to say, oh, look at this. The color of this tells us that the material in this warhead is made of substance X or Y, or even more importantly, my gosh, this isn't a warhead, this is a decoy, and that's designed to prevent us from shooting down actual warheads versus a decoy. So it was a very exciting mission. We were based on the island of Shemia, which is about two miles by four miles wide. It's at the tip of the Aleutians and the confluence of the Bering Sea and the Northern Pacific Ocean. So the weather was the worst on the planet. We were expected to launch within 15 minutes with no notice. You could be sound asleep in the middle of the night. You could be in the shower. You could be cooking your popcorn in the microwave. And 15 minutes later, you needed to be airborne whether you were ready to go or not. And (laughs) there were a few times where we'd take off wearing our gym clothes because we were in the gym working out, but we left our flight suits and our boots in the airplane. You'd get to the airplane, you'd take off, and you'd take a minute or two to finally put your flight suit back on and you'd land back and you're, you're all nasty and sweaty from being in the gym. But then you'd fly for 30 minutes, you'd get out to the area and you'd set up your orbit and you'd wait to hear. And the high point of any mission was hear the tactical coordinator come over the intercom and say, crew, we have x-ray, x-ray, x-ray. And he would elaborate what kind of re-entry we could expect, when it would happen. And as the co-pilot, I had one of the best seats in the house because I'd look out my right side window and I'd have my grease pencil. And as each re-entry vehicle or bus or whatever component would come in, I would trace that on the window. And then after the event was over, I'd translate that to a piece of paper. And knowing the different angles would help the people at Foreign Technology Division understand how those objects were perhaps arranged inside the ICBM or the bus that carried them to get back there. And You know, in the middle of the night, it was absolutely beautiful. And I think I alluded in my book that the opening moments of World War III would be tremendously gorgeous, but they would be horrible in their consequences. So, And then flying, of course, back to Shemi to recover. Nowhere on the planet are you going to have that kind of miserable, horrible weather, you know, wind shear, clouds, snow, ice, rain, all at the same time. And it was a really positive experience for me to hone my skills as a pilot and to develop crew coordination and work with two outstanding navigators, plus all the other people on the aircraft and who did their mission. And I, I think there's no question about it. It taught me the skills I needed during Desert Storm when we were actually flying combat against bad guys who were there and willing to shoot you down where the mission was different. It was primarily elent and comment, but again, the flying skills that I acquired and were honed at Shimya, the crew coordination and the operational planning and development, they were essential to the success of the rivet joint during desert storm. 
and that has continued to the present day with the value of the rivet joint to theater commanders around the world. Hmm. I'll bet. You know, I, I have to say, I really love something that you just said a couple of minutes ago. You mentioned just the, the incredible variety of high-tech and low-tech intelligence collection going on. You mentioned the spectroscopy that could be analyzed later on to figure something out. And at the same time, you're talking about drawing grease pencil lines on a window for the right. angle of reentry there. I mean, I can't imagine two things farther apart on the spectrum of low-tech and high-tech right there, but it all came together to provide a more clear picture of what the Soviets had or the Russians had as well later on. Exactly. And I think that's really one of the secrets to the U.S. reconnaissance program is that no matter what kind of gizmo or whiz bang you've got on an airplane, you still have to rely on a crew member looking out the window or looking at a scope or, or assessing firsthand and personally what they're seeing in real time rather than mm -hmm. someone at Fort Meade looking at an eight second delay via satellite of something. So uh, it's not just the pilots or the navigators. There's, there's 30 people in the back of the airplane. And I used to joke, oh, I wow. drove the bus. I got those guys where they needed to be at the right place at the right time and let them do their magic. And that kind of crew coordination allows both the high tech and the low tech to function as it's intended. Sure, sure, that makes sense. So I have to ask, earlier you talked about uh, the early flights where there were you know, linguists and whoever coming on board and the crew didn't recognize them or know what their job was. So when you were flying Cobra Ball, did you have a, a pretty good idea of what was going on in the back or was it mostly like just drive the bus, like you said? Originally, most of those missions were driving the bus. In fact, the flight crew did not have the security clearance even to go into the back of the airplane. <laughs> and so they wow. so they put the bathroom in the front of the airplane wow. rather than wow. in the back. So uh, that changed by the 1960s. And we as pilots knew everything that the backenders were doing, not because of any kind of security issues, the more we knew about what every position did, the better we were able as pilots, as navigators, to know how to get the airplane in the right place at the right time. So even in the modern day, there are capabilities of the two people sitting in the front seats to be able to understand fully what's going on in the back so that that whole mission can be accomplished more effectively. And that has been a real positive result for capability of these airborne assets. And we're no longer just the bus drivers. We're really part of the whole airborne reconnaissance team. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. It's good that there was a little more integration as time went on, especially with the increase in technology. So there, there's one thing I've been dying to ask you ever since I first came across you, as a matter of fact, online. I saw some an article last year that where you were quoted talking about the Dome of Light incidents that you witnessed. So I, I've looked into it as much as I can just through you know my laptop, and it just totally blows my mind. So please, if you will, can you kind of describe right. what you saw that day? Because it appears to be like a bizarre, unexplained phenomenon over the Soviet Union, maybe, you know, from our perspective, could be natural, might not be, might have been a super weapon, even I've heard reference. So uh, please tell the uninformed about what you saw that day. It was the weirdest experience that we had. A very good friend of mine and I were flying. Let's just say we called him Mad Jack for a reason, but 
Ian and I were flying along. We were northbound. It was very dark. We were, oh, middle of the night, bored to tears because there didn't appear to be any activity, but we were in our orbit off Kamchatka. And for some reason, we both looked off to our left, and there was this white, milky white. It wasn't a thick white, but it was as if there was some milk poured on a very dark screen. So it was translucent, but a white translucent wave that had a very clear delineation between where it was and where it wasn't. So almost as if you were pulling a white hood over it. And we watched it proceed from the left-hand side of our windscreen all the way across to the right side of the windscreen and then it effectively just disappeared and and faded out and we looked at each other and thought what the heck was that and we wrote it up and we turned it into the intel guys and they said oh dr bob and mad jack are flying together they must have been in the mushrooms again so at first we were kind of blown off and dismissed by this on another mission with a different aircraft commander, we saw it again, and we reported it. And by this time, FTD down at Wright-Patterson was really interested in what was going on because they couldn't explain it, and they were very concerned about it. So they actually set up a mission where they flew a Cobra ball into the Sea of Okhotsk, which is on the west side of Kamchatka, a very unusual mission, a long-duration mission, with the hope of being able to see this dome of light from the inside, from the other side. Well, they were fortunately able to collect on that, and everybody got all excited at Wright-Patterson and said, this is just really cool. That's amazing. And we said, what is it? And they said, you don't have the clearance to know. <laughs> of course. And, oh, and, and that was the end of, and, and wow. that was the end of our association with it. And the more I've dug into it, the more I I think a lot of people are were of the opinion at the time that it was associated with the launch of certain ICBMs, whether it was from a canister or from whatever their fuel was. And a similar sort of thing was seen off to the west. It wasn't just west to east. It was from, say, Placetsk, where these were launched. It would also go off towards Norway and, and the, the Shetlands and the Orkneys off into the western half. And so it wasn't strictly something that we would see over Kamchatka. And the speed at which it moved and everything, um, I I think there was a belief that it was perhaps associated with some mechanism to try and blind the Samos or Midas kinds of DBRS, the satellites that would try and detect a ballistic missile launch that they would see this white area covering a large space and would be unable to see specific missile launches, kind of like a smoke screen, if you will. But that's only speculation. The piece that I did with Tyler for the drive that 
I think a lot of folks have looked at. One of the sources he came across suggested it was related to some kind of super weapon, a ray of some sort. I tend to discount that. I'm I'm an Occam's razor kind of guy that says the simplest explanation is the one that makes the most sense. And so I think it was either related to the fuel or somehow associated with the launch of certain ballistic missiles or was intended as a smoke screen to blind the uh, satellites designed to detect ballistic missile launches in the Soviet Union as early warning to NORAD and defenses here in the United States. What it is, I don't know. I have searched CIA records on Crest and everywhere else. Dome of Light is something that I can't get anybody to talk about, and I would love to know more. But you know, you know as much as I do. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's endlessly fascinating, and you know, from from the little digging I did, which is probably the same thing as Tyler saw, and probably the same thing or even less than what you've seen. But whatever analysis was done, it hasn't been declassified yet, so maybe it will be one day. Uh, I'm I hope so. Endlessly, endlessly curious about what that was, because it sounds like it was what? It was like a thousand kilometers wide before it disappeared, right? Like covering. Oh, it was huge. It was, it was huge. We were, it went from where we were in the middle of the Kamchatka Peninsula to the horizon. And from 32,000 feet, that was hundreds and hundreds of miles to the horizon. And in any direction, it was, so it had to have been at least 500 kilometers, excuse me, 500 nautical miles. It was huge and it covered the whole, the entire windscreen. Everywhere we looked, there was nowhere it was not visible. So it wasn't just some kind of streak or a pencil line. It really was if someone had pulled a translucent white, milky white shade completely over the globe from west to east. And they did it quickly. It moved very fast. Hmm. That's incredible. It's, it's really just hard for me to conceptualize, honestly. So when you saw it, uh, especially the first time, did you think that, I don't know, did you think that this was the end? Did you think that you were about to die or anything since you were already seeing, you know, the reentry vehicles in the past, seeing something that, you know, most people equate with the end of the world? I mean, what passed through your mind in those first moments seeing this unexplainable phenomenon? Oh, no, in absolute truth, I, I literally looked to my left and I said to Jack, what in the heck was that? Did you see that? I saw it. You saw it? You, yeah, we saw it. But And then we talked about it. Was it a meteor? Was it some kind of... We, we had no idea. And then when we told people about it, it was kind of like the airline pilot that says, I saw a flying saucer. And then he gets ridiculed about it, and so he just shuts up and forgets about it. But then after I saw it a second time, and then another crew reported it, then FTD suddenly got all energized about it. I My feelings were simply, uh, with all due respect to my French, what the f- heck was that? <laughs> so... <Yeah. laughs> 
No, nothing more. I, we ne- I never felt threatened at all flying the Cobra Ball. We we had MiG-31s come up occasionally, and uh, even a Tu-16 Badger that flew with us in fingertip formation for about three hours went out to the tanker with us and filmed the whole thing. So uh, I never felt threatened at all by the, the Soviets at that time. So Ooh. I didn't think anything bad about it at all. Good, good, good. Okay, well, that puts my mind at ease a little bit anyway. So I, I sure hope some more information comes out about that. And I'll look to you to do a write-up on it if it ever does come out, because you've got a closer connection than just about anybody else, I think. It's on my list. <laughs> so speaking of your list, I know that you said you have the the next book is going to be coming out in maybe early 2023. Is that right? Are you working on more than one right now or just on, on the second volume at the moment? No, actually, I have two books that are currently in production. Uh, one's called Klaxon, which is a history of the Strategic Air Command alert program uh, that's ready to be printed right now. And I'm also finishing up a book I'm co-authoring okay. with Leonard Anderson Crowded Skies, Cold War Era Reconnaissance in the Baltic. And between his Swedish and my English, I think we've got a very fascinating story to tell. And uh, it really began as a chapter out of volume two of Spy Flights, which covers from 1960 to 1992. But there was so much activity in the Baltic, it deserved to have its own full book. So both of those are in production, meaning that they're at the publisher and the klaxon has been laid out. Uh, Crowded Skies is about ready to to go there. So um, look for those near the end of the calendar year or the very beginning of next year, depending on how publishers want to market them. And then, of course, volume two of spy flights and concurrent with that i'm also writing an operational history of strategic air command so um, i have a pretty full plate right now and look forward to being able to help people understand a lot of what has been buried in classified archives for decades that's great that's great i'm surprised you had time to sit down for this interview honestly but i'm very glad that you did because it's been a great one So is there anywhere, Robert, that people can connect with you online right now if they kind of want to follow your progress or see your commentary, anything like that? Do you have a public facing profile? Uh, I do. And it's a very small one. Uh, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Cobra Ball 3. And I have a few followers that are interested in current activities associated with aerial reconnaissance and with all the OSINT community. And every now and then, if you look on uh, Facebook, particularly in the Aviation Enthusiast Book Club, you'll find me there as a commentator or people will be reviewing or discussing the books that I've written or I'm working on. But I have yet to develop a web page and I'm certainly not a social media influencer with YouTube or any other sources. And I'll defer to your expertise as as the podcast of choice about Cold War intelligence. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it, Robert, but uh, I'm pretty new to this myself, I have to say, but I have been following you on Twitter for a while and I I really like the insight that you provide and you seem to be on there pretty frequently. So it definitely holds my, my interest for sure. Uh, Well, 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 thank you for coming on. My kids will tell you that I'm on there too much, but uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. My, my platform of choice, kind of my flagship platform is Instagram but it's all grown up stuff. You know what I mean? It's no influencer stuff or anything like that, but it right. definitely is a time sink for me getting into these stories and connecting with people that are, have the shit, same interests as I do and all that. So that's a, that's wound up being a, a lot of hours out of my day, but very rewarding as well. Understood.
I appreciate you having me on today. I know how much in demand it is to get folks to um, find time that you would allocate to them. So I hope I've contributed to a better understanding of what these reconnaissance flights were all about. Yeah, absolutely. It's been very enlightening, and I really appreciate it, Robert. Thank you so much. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram, at Spycraft 101, or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Jacob H. and Michael C. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.